I mean, I'd run my business thinking to sell the company. I mean, that's sort of the whole point of it. We're building an asset. It's about refocusing on what really matters. It's a mindset. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics, and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. All right, it's episode 157. The topic of the day is building to sell your manufacturing business. Our guest this week is Robert Goldsmith, the founder and president of Northern Edge Advisors, a boutique investment bank offering M&A expertise in advising for owners of private businesses. You know, every once in a while, I get an email with a guest suggestion that really catches my attention, and this was the case with Bob. As the U.S. experiences a manufacturing renaissance and the next generation starts to enter the manufacturing workforce, I found it personally interesting learning more and more about buying and selling manufacturing companies. And part of the reason is I've discovered it's a subject I feel we can all learn a lot from, whether we're thinking about buying or selling a manufacturing company now or ever. I think you'll see what I mean after listening to today's episode. So here are three things you can expect. First, Bob discusses what it means to build to sell your business. He'll cover what makes a business attractive to a buyer, best practices for preparing to sell a manufacturing business, and when you should start thinking about selling your business. Second, and this part is for everyone here, we weave this discussion into a lot of the topics we typically discuss on this show, like productivity, some of the technologies we discuss frequently, and even business models we've talked about on this show before. Finally, Bob shares both internal and external factors to be aware of when building a business that could one day become a sellable asset. As always, if you want to learn more, check out the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 157. And I do want to thank our sponsor for this week, 3M, before we get rolling with this episode. 3M just released their Clash of the Grinders Student Edition web series, which is a high-stakes grinding and welding competition that pits soon-to-be pros against one another to find the most talented up-and-comers in the skilled trades. This is what I like to call like a mini manufacturing reality show. It's airing as a web series and the first episodes are out now. That's all happening on the 3M Abrasives YouTube channel, which you can get to by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 3M. Throughout this series, you'll get to see the competition as these trades leaders face off in welding and cutting challenges, but it's more than just the competition. You'll see emerging trends that these folks will face in their careers and how new innovations are helping them work more efficiently and sustainably. Of course, it wouldn't be a true competition if there weren't a prize at the end of all this. The winner receives a game-changing $10,000 scholarship sponsored by Fanuc. So again, if you want to keep up with the action, subscribe to the 3M Abrasives YouTube channel by going to manufacturing happyhour.com slash 3m okay with that we are ready to roll it's time to head to the big apple to meet up with bob goldsmith so bob first question if we were having today's conversation about exit planning and m&a over a beverage where would that be anywhere in the world pick your spot Anywhere, well, probably, uh, I don't know, the south of France. Oh, all right. But I think uh, as a practical matter, I, I, I work and I live in midtown Manhattan. And uh, if it was evening time, 
might meet for a drink at uh, Spark Steakhouse on 42nd, uh, 46th between 1st and 2nd. And uh, if it was for fun, probably uh, PJ Clark's on 55th Street and uh, 3rd Avenue. All right. PJ Clark's Spark Steakhouse. We've got a couple of options. So well, let's say we're hanging out at one of those. We've got wine. We've got a cocktail, whatever it may be. What? How, well, how do you answer this question if you're having a drink with someone? What does it mean to build to sell? What it means is preparing your business uh, in a manner that is going to increase the asset value of the company, right? Really making it more attractive to a buyer. There are things that we focus on when we're running the company, profits, paying less taxes at the end of the year uh, that we wouldn't, that, that, that aren't the primary things to think about when we're selling the business, right? We might have extra expenses that we incur because we've got a relative at the company who maybe isn't pulling their share or just the person's been with us a long time. It's really about thinking about things to improve, uh, to improve the, the, the company. Um, so, and I, just to put it in context, I mean, next year, record number of Americans are going to reach the traditional retirement age of 65 and baby boomers own over half of the privately owned businesses in the U S and, uh, and many of them lack a real transition plan for the business. So building to sell means enhancing the value of the business to a buyer. So they'll pay more and you will receive more. Um, so I'll give you some examples. I mean, if you're tired and coasting, you may. Uh, no longer think about scalability, but it's easy to imagine why it'd be important to a buyer. You may control every aspect of the business's operation because that's who you are and that's how you run it. But a buyer is going to need to know that there is a competent and coherent management team that's capable of driving the business without you, right? A business with a competent management team, it'll have a lot more value to the to the, uh, to the buyer and actually it might make your life a little better, right? A lot of us are pretty controlling in the way we run our business and and we complain about never being able to get away, um, it'll increase the value. Um, and then there are you know, specific things, like if your working capital is higher than it needs to be, more capital has to be left with the business for the buyer at closing. So it behooves you to put in place systems to convert receivables to cash. Um, you know, Those are all the kinds of things that uh, help out. Um, and I think we think about building to sell, it gives you a chance to act fast when personal priorities align with ideal with with market conditions or when a buyer knocks on your door, right? Like someone approaches you. And I often speak to people who say, you know, I'm now talking to a, a buyer and they've requested all these documents and I've sent them all these documents. Well, shouldn't we know what documents to send and what they need and also not have to say to the buyer, you need to wait two months. So it's really about thinking ahead uh, to improve the underlying asset value of the business. Um, I think too often we think we treat our companies like it's our job instead of thinking about nurturing the business so that the asset value really increases. Put another way, you, you can never get the money out of the business while you're running it that you could take out of the business when you sell it. And obviously on a more tax favorable basis. Let me, let me give you another example. Um, Though buyers initially base uh, bid based on some valuation methodology, um, we ultimately see high variance in bids because an acquisition target company. So for your listeners, you know, their business, um, that business has different value to different buyers. And we may say to them that your business could trade between six and nine times EBITDA. So you can focus 
exit planning. It's about focusing on factors that move the value from a six times EBITDA to a nine times EBITDA. And, uh, and that's what allows you to get the most out of the business. It's a way of looking at your company. It's a way of preparing it for sale. So I, I have a number of questions from that. My first question is based on your experience, whether it's manufacturing companies or the, the many different type of companies that you work with, how many people think they're preparing for the future, preparing to sell versus the reality that you see when you start working with them? Like what's, is there a discrepancy there or are people that are actually preparing to sell doing all the right things or are there common mistakes that you see? Oh, I just think there's a list of things that people could do that they're not doing. And so they think they're preparing to sell, but they're not actually engaged in the activities that will increase value. Um, like there's specific things that they can focus on to um, to increase value, right? Um, you know, I mentioned a coherent, cohesive management team. Um, like the quality of their financial information. I, I met with a company last week and said, "This stuff it just works for us, right? Yeah. Like we, we know what we're doing. We know where the cash is. We know who we have to pay, and it works for us." Um, but it's really incumbent on an owner to evaluate the quality of their financial information. Uh, to upgrade the quality of their uh, accounting provider, maybe, and mm -hmm. think about an outside CFO, maybe, because buyers are, you know, they're going to be super focused on that. Yeah. Um, you know, driving operating efficiency in a manufacturing company, right? You think about, you know, an extra hundred thousand dollars of, uh, of 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 salary that you're paying to someone that's really not, uh, you know, working hard. Um, it, it, at a multiple, that's like six hundred thousand or nine hundred thousand dollars when you sell. So maybe dealing with some of those issues, um, you know, how updated machinery is. People may not be focused on that. Uh, things like ISO, um, environmental issues, employee safety issues, all the things that a buyer is really going to focus on, um, I, I think are important items that can help them. So I've I've been jotting down the list. You're talking, and this is this is a range. You talk about a cohesive management team the quality of the financial information, operating efficiencies, updated machineries, ISOs, sustainability, things that are new. What would you say are the the top ones that manufacturers seem to miss? Is there one that if I'm a manufacturer, maybe I'm retiring in the future and I'm looking to sell, what is the thing that I should start thinking about today to start moving in the right direction? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on the individual business, but if there's concentration uh, to a particular set of customers uh, or a particular supplier, right? We just experienced that during the pandemic where people couldn't receive goods. Knowing that that has been uh, resolved, that there aren't risks in, in, involved. You know, a buyer, a way to think about it is a, a buyer is buying a series of cash flows that, and an expectation they're going to increase in the future. And they're balancing that with things that uh, they feel will risk that that's going to go away. And so I think it's really mitigating those those risks. R really, for a manufacturer or another company, I, the, the quality of information is critical. Because you know, to the extent that you don't, you know, the operating manuals, uh, uh, the, the depth of um, uh, you, you know, the quality of, of other information. But there are many things, you, you know, the, the ability to hire quality people. Yeah. Right. I was talking to a company that had a very high growth rate and they got completely stunted by their inability to hire quality people. That might be a reason to sell, by the way. 
because a larger company with the right resources can can help you. But those are sure. all those are all things. But I, I think really strong sourcing and uh, you know avoiding sort of customer concentration or critical issues. And then the, you know, the quality of machinery and, uh, you know, good plans and a good approach to, to modernizing and, and uh, keeping things running properly. I think one of the things that really resonated about that answer was your comment that a buyer is buying a series of cash flows and an expectation for the future. We've, because we've talked about this on the show a couple times from a buying and selling standpoint, the type of things mm. that, that people might do. Um, maybe we can role play a little bit here. Let's say I'm a manufacturer that, you know, I'm looking to sell, whether it's I'm, I'm looking for a new gig, I'm retiring, plenty of reasons we could probably think of. What would be the exit timeline or preparing for exit timeline to really start getting a company to the right spot. Maybe if, you know, you've got decent financial information, but maybe it's not as tidied up as it could. You've got a lot of good processes, but hey, maybe they're documented in Excel or on paper rather than in a manufacturing execution system, if you will. What would be this? How would you start preparing for an exit? Right. So um, it's a great question. If you have the time, right, I would start. I would start two or three or four years in advance. I mean, I'd run my business thinking to sell the company. I mean, that's sort of the whole point of it. We're, we're building an asset, but the, the problem, and I'm very sympathetic because, you know, if you're running a manufacturing company, you're, there are so many things to do. There are so many challenges and fire drills every single day that it's just very difficult to think long term. Right. It's it's hard to think about all the professionalizing things that you'd like to do. Right. And they would say, Bob, Chris, yeah, I'd love to do that. But, you know, do you know what my normal day is like? It starts at six in the morning. It ends at nine o'clock at night. And so I don't have time to do that. But it becomes so valuable. It's about refocusing on what really matters. And so I, I think starting two or three years ahead is a great idea if you have that time. But that's for the owner who says, you know what, like I. I'm thinking about doing it now. What are the things that I should do? You know, Bob and Chris, what are the things I should do to get ready for the exit? But I'm not there yet. I'm enjoying the income. You know, I've got kids in college, right? I'm 62, but I feel you're 67. I've got it in my belly. I want to keep going um, and I have time. But then there are others who say that uh, they may be a year in advance. And so we, we, we have clients who they sign up and we get going and we, we make sure that their financials in order and we help them do the things so that it will be so that the presentation is as compelling as possible, credible, persuasive, true, and as compelling as possible for a buyer. But very often someone uh, will say to someone, you know what, you need a little bit more time. We'll help you out. Right. That, that Our business is not a consulting business, but it is about selling businesses for the highest value. So very often we'll we'll say to someone you know what, you're, you're not going to start for a year. We understand that. Let us just give, we'll, we'll give you some help. And, and that's not a commercial, like, you know, we're, we're consulting for you. It's just, we want to have the relationship and we see if we can get financial information in order. Mm -hmm. uh, if we can help them to prepare some of the things that relate to any legal issues. If there's environmental stuff, like if they can do a phase one and phase, like phase two, all those types of things are things that we can help them get started on. And um, so it's never too early, but also if someone, when someone says, I, I, I want to go now, we, we can pull things into order pretty, 
if we need to, we can really pull things in order um, yeah. quite quickly. But if you had time to make things that much better, you would do that. It's funny because what I heard in that answer was, hey, we can fast track it. Like we can probably get a lot of the things you need aligned within a year. You were saying, hey, start two or three years in advance. But tell me if I heard this the right way. This just might be my interpretation, but it really sounds like this is a mental shift that any business owner should have about their company where even if they're young and not like it's a lifestyle business that they're planning to run for a long time, they should still be thinking in that context that someday future me is going to want to sell this business. Right. You, you just put a point on, you know, a, a pen on it. That, that, that's exactly what people should do. I mean, we, we sell companies that approach us and we get them ready and they're in great shape and uh, the timing is right and we go to market and they sell the business. But if there's a young business owner, there's guidance that will help them. I, I think you said it's a mindset, which is exactly right. It's, you know, it's working on the asset value. Measure the asset value of the company, not just sort of how did I do this year? Benchmark. How, how do I compare to others? What, what are my margins compared to my competitors? Um, how efficient are my operations? And so th those are things that you can do. You know, putting together employment agreements or proper contracts with customers. It, some of these things are like, we don't need that now. Um, but if you can get into the habit of professionalizing it, it's really very helpful. By the way, for private equity and other strategic buyers will pay for that. But it's one of the things that they do, right? They look at all these businesses that haven't been professionalized and they say, this is opportunity for us. Yeah. We can create efficiency. Yeah. Right? We, we can create Im improvement. So I, I often speak to groups where you, know, you can have young professionals who have uh, earlier stage businesses and we just talk about things exactly what you said. It really is a mindset about um, what you're doing with the company. Well, I'm going to take a quick moment to speak to the audience here because, Bob, you've touched on a lot of topics that we discuss on this show in the context of operational efficiency or why you'd want to bring in a new technology because it makes your operations safer, more efficient. It gives you better tracking of the work that you're doing or the standard right. operating procedures that you have. So that way, when someone on your shop floor retires, they're not taking all their tribal knowledge with them. In fact, it's no longer tribal knowledge because you've democratized it into your system in some way, shape, or form. So really, I think for a lot of the manufacturers out there, what we're talking about is we're kind of double dipping because these are things they should be doing anyway to be a more competitive business, to be a better business that, right. oh, by the way, this is going to make your life a lot easier whether it's two, three years down the line or 20 to 30 years down the line when you're planning to sell this business because you've been doing the things to keep your financial information clean and you've been doing the things to make sure you have the right management team. The way I look at it is if a manufacturer is doing all of these things for the reasons of being competitive, being better positioned in the market, having an operation that is state-of-the-art – by default, they've created a lot of the things that you've been talking about today. Right. And so what I do see in the market is that, or what I see with business owners, is that, you know, most entrepreneurs, many of them are visionary. Um, I would say almost 100% of the clients that I've had in manufacturing are either 
fantastic at the product. They're fantastic at the system. They're engineers. They just get it. Like they know how to do it better. They know how to make things run correctly. And that's why they were successful. That's why it worked. And they didn't, you know, just drop out in, in after six months. In the early days when things were really hard to get started. Others are really good at sales, right? They're great with clients. They know how to go out and sell. And we get a lot of clients who say, you know, how do you sell, how do you sell your products? I say, I don't really know. They're just, people come to us. They just love the quality. By the way, that's great for a buyer who says, we don't care that you don't have a distribution channel in Europe because we're great at that. We'll take your stuff and we'll sell it there. Yeah. But what happens to them is that the, the, all the daily needs, they get stuck in the business, right? You start out spending all your time making a great product within a couple of years. And it happens to most of us, you know, we're dealing with customer issues. We're dealing with HR issues. We can't hire the right people. The tax issues come up, the regulatory issues that bog us down. And so many older manufacturers and other business owners that I speak with say, I really spend very little time doing the things that matter. And as a result, they get stuck. And so these things that are great for the exit are great for running your business. If, if you're not going to be transacting for 15 years, do the things in your company that allow you to get back to your highest and best purpose. Mm-hmm. We, we don't need you running the HR department, right? We, right? We, we don't need that. What we need you doing is getting back. And we understand why it is. This is about setting up a system so that you don't have to do that. So you can do the things that make the business great. What happens in a lot of companies is that there's a business life cycle. There's a high trajectory and then they plateau, there's competition. And at that point, if you reinvest your time and capital, the business can ascend again. But what often happens is that we're just so stuck doing the mundane day-to-day, really important stuff that we're not able to look to look down the road, to look at the horizon and really have, and, and really have high growth. It's the difference between a company that has 4 million in EBITDA and a company that, you know, winds up having 11 million of EBITDA. So I have a question. You made a comment that many manufacturers that you deal with, they might have an engineering background. They're really good in their product, for example. But like any of us, we get caught up in the day-to-day after that and maybe lose sight of the core things we should be worrying about because we're responding to customer issues. There's an HR issue, whatever it may be. Since you get to work with a number of different industries, is there something that comes to mind that manufacturers could do better when it comes to building to sell that you see other industries or sectors do pretty well? Or maybe it's nothing that manufacturers need to explicitly improve, but something you've seen as a best practice that, hey, if more people did this in general, they'd be better positioned to sell. Yeah, I, you know, I think the advantage that some other businesses have is that the the, the recurring revenue nature of their business, and we, we know, you know, is valuable in manufacturing and uh, uh, make them successful are you know economies of scale, uh, the ability to get new technologies in the market, um, having vertical or horizontal integration. Um, I mean, those are common M&A drivers, and and I think that we need manufacturers to really focus on that, right? Like some of the M&A drivers are smart manufacturing technologies, automation, robotics, 3D printing. I've been in firms that do such cool stuff in that uh, in that area. Private equity firms are increasingly uh, investing in services such as warehouse robotics. I mentioned data sensors, um, smart manufacturing technologies. 
Um, so I, I think that there are, there, there are a lot of things that they can do that will, that will allow them to, that will increase their saleability. Yeah. One, one thing that sticks out there is you mentioned recurring revenue, right? Which for some industrial companies has not been the norm. I would say until now, a lot of companies are trying to get there where they are trying to build out those revenue streams where they're trying to build out maybe a robotics as a service model, as an example, more of these hardware as a service type of solutions. So I definitely see things trending that way. The next round of our interviews coming up right after a word from our sponsor. If you're a maintenance leader, then you definitely need to learn about traction. Traction is an all-in-one hardware software solution that integrates condition monitoring, IoT sensors, and an asset management software. More importantly, they make your maintenance department more streamlined, reliable, and profitable. So, if you work in maintenance or lead a team of maintenance folks, then don't miss episode 127 featuring their founder, Igor Marinelli. There you'll hear the full story behind Traction, and you'll hear why Igor truly believes that maintenance leaders are the industrial champions that are bringing the future of machine monitoring to life. He shares why frontline teams are at the center of industrial innovations and how to move past proof-of-concept projects and actually implement new ideas. Tune in by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 127 or wherever you get your podcasts. Traction, leave breakdowns and production delays behind and invest in real predictive maintenance. Learn more at traction.com. And now back to today's episode. As we get into the final throes of our conversation, let's talk about considerations that might signal the ideal time to sell as well. We've, we've been talking about retirement quite a bit when you're getting to that age where you're, you're ready to move on to something else. But, you know, market conditions, supply chain, other economic factors, personal priorities all tie into this as well. So what are what are the things people need to be thinking of as like, hey, this this is this might be a good time to sell? Well, there are external factors and there are internal factors. I mean, I think the internal factors are the things that wear a business owner down over a period of time, right? You know, one is time making the kind of money that they always wanted to make, and yet they feel like they can never get away. And it becomes more of a burden, right? They become more frustrated with the time issues or lifestyle. I mean, people have uh, other interests uh, Other interests they have. Um, we sold a uh, company called uh, Garvin Industries, which is based in Chicago. Uh, and the owner had done an amazing job of creating real efficiencies in the company uh, and uh, was able to bypass traditional distribution channels. And so uh, he, the business was very successful and really growing rapidly. But, you know, he found that um, not only was he not able to uh, spend as much time as he wanted with his kids, but it was becoming pretty exhausting. Plus, this is somebody that had huge interest in uh, community giving, uh, involvement with his church and other things he wanted to do. So, you know, that would be something of a, um, of a I would say, a lifestyle change, which is a, a prompt. Um, owner versus manager, which we already really talked about, which is that, you know, owners, they're visionary, they're great at doing, creating all the systems, but then they eventually become managers. And that's not a good uh, mix for anybody. Um, and the diversification of assets, right? Like we have all these baby boomers retiring. So people want to are thinking about estate planning with the 
uh, with the pandemic, I think people just became more aware of their own mortality. I think we probably all did. Um, so, and, and then the point of view on external factors are that, um, you know, absent a deep recession or unusually seller friendly market, which will prompt you in the other way, you, you do sell when you're both financially uh, ready um, uh, and in terms of your commitment to the business versus other things. We, we went through a period uh, uh, during the pandemic, as you know, in March 2020, where there was a huge dip, right? You wouldn't sell your business then. There was, there was a five, six month period where things really stopped. Um, and then there was a slingshot effect where you had all this pent up demand and it was it turned into a great market. 2021 was the record high for selling businesses, manufacturing companies too. We had all this reshoring activity. It was a great time to sell your company. Um, and then in 2022, it dropped down a bit. We know that the volumes came down. And in uh, 2023, it's dropped down further, although 2022 and 2023 were um, actually pretty good years from an historical perspective. This year, we've had higher interest rates, right, which has caused a pause. Mm -hmm. uh, and we think that's going to work out in the next couple of months. And there is a lot of pent-up demand. And so we're, we think that 2024 is actually going to be a very – uh, will be a very strong year. And the other thing that I would say, on the assumption that your viewers are, um, you know, in our world, real people, middle market companies, lower middle market companies, right? They may have a million of EBITDA, right? They may be 5 million of revenue or 10 million of revenue, or they may have 15 million of EBITDA and 150 million of revenue. Um, those businesses are, are very often in these markets uh, add-on opportunities, which means that a private equity group, for instance, um, is going to buy them to bolster a portfolio company they have. And there's a lot of activity in that area. So people can say the market's slowing down, but it can be an excellent time uh, now to sell your business. What, what is important is that your business is, we went through a period in 2021 where people were buying because of a fear of missing out, right? They just, you know, you're selling, we're bidding. I'm exaggerating. Now they're more discerning. And so we should think about, it goes back to exit planning. We should think about how do my products fit into their category of products? What are our cross-selling opportunities that we have, right? How, do, how can I sell to their customers? How can they sell to mine? What are the operational efficiencies between these two businesses? A manufacturer will say to me when they're selling, I, I think I need to build, make this $10 million investment. And we're thinking, well, what if the, what if the, we have to both think, you know, what if you don't sell? But we also have to think, what if the buyer has that capacity, right? So those are those are things that we're thinking about. We want to really be focused on why your business has value to a particular uh, buyer. It, it, why your business has value to a particular buyer. It, it is, a, I think, a good time to sell what I would call an A or B business, right? An A business is just has no hair on it, as they say. It's pristine. A B business has a great reason for being uh, its products will mix with a, a buyer's product. We can think of lots of synergies. Maybe they can hire the people that you can't hire. You can leverage their sales force and resources. Um, the businesses that are having a tougher time are the, you know, what I would say C quality, which are businesses that, you know, there's environmental, severe environmental problem. Uh, you know, growth is, can't really find a direction for growth, other issues in the company. Um, 
So I, I think that right, you know, right now is a pretty good time to be thinking about the market if you want to, if, if it's, if it's what, what you want to do with your business, if you're there sort of emotionally and mentally. Yeah. I think something you said that stuck out to me was you talked about the internal and external conditions and you ultimately brought it around to, Hey, despite when there's like a hype cycle, like in 2021, be discerning about the type of business you'd be buying or selling, right? You want to make sure it's a fit for what you do rather than being like, like you said, Hey, you're selling, we're bidding. Like don't necessarily get into that type of, uh, type of mindset. You know, and that's our job. I mean, you know, we're, we're a firm of 40 professionals, you know, all former wall street investment bankers, you know, offices in different places and so forth. But what we're doing is guiding people through that. If, if it's not the right time to sell, we'll tell our clients, you know, we're looking for, uh, you know, we, we want longer term relationships so we can sell at the best time for the business. I, I think what's important going back to one of our themes is to engage in these processes, right? Make, make it part of your running of the company to have conversations. So, right, like develop a relationship so that we can give you some guidance. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that actually is a, like similar to my last question. I was going to ask, what do most manufacturers or companies you work with in general, what don't they understand about M&A banking that you wish they would understand? Uh, the, the, what stands out to me uh, and what is, I would say, extraordinarily frustrating, but it's the nature of what we do is that business owners don't understand the complexity of, uh, of M&A. They don't, as much as we endeavor to explain it, uh, and it's, you know, rests with us, but as much as we endeavor to explain it, until someone has been through the process, they really don't understand uh, what's involved. And thus there's a moral hazard, which is uh, regularly someone says, you know, I, there was a knock on the door and uh, this overseas company made an inquiry and I'm going to do it myself. And it's because our clients are people who've been very successful in their careers. You know, they're alphas often, they're strong personalities. They've had a lot of success negotiating a variety of things and they do not understand the expertise uh, that is involved in this process. They don't understand that it's a 150 page sale purchase agreement, you know, with not one little number that comprises whether you've been very successful or not successful. And so it's sort of like, I think there's an assumption that it's like real estate brokering, which is sort of find me a buyer and, you know, we'll get a price. And it really, um, it's, it's very costly to owners in terms of time and in terms of getting, you know, deals that don't work or earnouts that don't pay. And it's um, it's it's uh, and it's 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 a fixable issue. So we we uh, we have a lot of clients who tried to do it on their own and uh, made lots of mistakes. You know, sent inappropriate information because the buyers requested it. Sent financial information that hadn't been re reviewed, um, and then you know then we intervene and create a market and fix the situation and really um, and can and can really help them out. But I, I think to me that, you know, that that's the, the greatest uh, challenge and sort of frustration with us. Yeah, I think that's a very logical 
word of caution is probably the strong word, but hey, you're you're right. Like people that are business owners have accomplished a lot in their career. They've ran a business successfully. They're at the point where they want to sell it. They've probably fought through recessions and other challenges. So they're like, hey, how hard could it be? Right. But I think it's a good uh, lesson in humility of recognizing, hey, M&A is going to be something very different from what I've dealt with before. I should probably get help. Right. And also just time. I mean, there's provision of thousands and thousands of pages of documents, all of which have to be reviewed and have to be gathered. And it's a distraction. And so we specialize in doing that. And, um, you know, our clients tell us that the team of people that are supporting the transaction make a profound difference, not only in the success of the transaction, but in their ability to run the company. Yeah. Right? The, the number one thing that will undermine a sale of a business is erosion of earnings during the process because the business owner got distracted. And don't think that some of the buyers, I don't mean they intentionally do that because they want the business to do well, but they know it's an uneven playing field. They, they, they know the business owner doesn't have the resources and, and it's a strategy, right? It's called proprietary deal flow. It's private equity reaching out directly. Why wouldn't they, why would they want to have competition? Um, right. They want to do it directly. It's a strategy. And so, but it can be very costly for, for owners and you get one shot at this, you know, what the thing that, um, as sort of an insider view, I mentioned a company called Garvin, right? Garvin industries and Bart's one of the, when we set up our firm, you know, we wanted to, wanted to bring wall street bankers to the middle market and lower middle market. And, but we also wanted to, um, have a relationship with our clients, like not be so institutional, uh, really treat them properly. And so many of our former clients are our friends. And, you know, in Bard's case, and I consider him a good friend, I'm just, it's just one example. Um, he had a distribution and manufacturing business. You know, people were like, you know, five, six, like that's sort of the, the, the norm. He was doing brilliant things with his business. It was very clever. He did uh, the pre-planning. He was very focused on actually hired an outside CFO and he did all the things that one should do or many of the things to improve the business. Th that business should be at a five multiple. I don't think he minds my saying that it traded at a 10 because of the value he was bringing to, to, to the buyer, but that they didn't do that by accident. They did that because, you know, I forget the exact number, but I think we had 16 buyer meetings. We had many companies bidding. We sold to Southwire, which is itself a terrific private company. Oh, yeah. Um, a terrific business, multiple bidders, and, and prices elevated. They didn't start at the high because, you know, in the I'm being facetious, but in the history of negotiations, nobody ever bid their walkaway price initially. Right. Southwire is a great company. I love this specific example. And it goes back to something you mentioned earlier. It sounds like Garvin, in this case, was a company that understood the value of outsourcing things that weren't core to them. So when it came to M&A, they also understood that that was something that was going to take because we we often think of like a lot of these things in terms of the money that we invest, but the time that invests is just something that's been resonating with me as I think right when you said like 150 page like sales document right there, I'm like, that sounds like a lot of time and energy and things that I don't understand that I wouldn't want to try to take on on my own. So excellent examples. As we wrap up, Bob, what's the best way to connect with you and North Edge Advisors? 
So my email address is uh, bgoldsmith at northernedgeadvisors.com. Uh, but call me up. I, uh, my cell number, or not my cell number, my, my, my direct number in the office is 212-520-8290. Uh, and again, the email is bgoldsmith at Northern Edge Advisors. And uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn. I do, uh, I've learned to be efficient on there. And, um, and I look, you know, I'm always open to a discussion or to continue the discussion on some of these issues and give some, you know, what I would call informal sidebar advice. We're not, uh, we don't run on a meter. Well, Bob, this has been a very helpful conversation. I know our audience has taken some some good tips from it around the mentality of building to sell. For those of listening, I'll make sure there are ways for you to connect with Bob in the show notes, LinkedIn, the website will be there as well. And uh, hopefully you were taking down notes for his phone number and email as well. He is uh, an easy individual to reach. So Bob, thank you so much for taking the time to be on today's show. Yeah, Chris, great of you to have me. And uh, you gained a new, at least with me, you gained a new viewer today. So I really appreciated the time with you and uh, enjoyed it. Well, you gave us two bar recommendations. So wherever we were for round one, it's time to hop down the road for round two. Thanks a bunch, Bob. Thank you, Chris. Hey, thanks for listening. I hope you found that idea of building to sell your business as a mindset helpful because we referenced it in the episode, but the reality is everything Bob was talking about are things we talk about on this show just in the context of manufacturing specifically, making sure your process is optimized, the type of business systems you need to be investing in to make your business as good it can be. All of those things are the stuff that turns performance data and tribal knowledge into part of your overall manufacturing asset, the manufacturing business that you're building. So if you want to learn more, if you want to connect with Bob and Northern Edge Advisors, you can do that over at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 157. I've also included links to Sparks Steakhouse as well as PJ Clark's where I need to go get a beer at some point. Hopefully I'll have a chance to visit both of those spots whenever I make it back out to New York City. And with that, I just want to thank our sponsor before we wrap this week's episode 3M. I've said it before, make sure you are subscribed to the 3M Abrasives YouTube channel to catch all the action in their new Clash of the Grinders student edition video series. Manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 3M will take you right there. And with that, that's a wrap for this week. Stay innovative, stay thirsty, and we will catch you again real soon. Cheers. for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour, powered by the Industrial Network.